There's a place where God has fed your soul. There's an assembly where you first found the Savior. It's called the church. The church is faulty because it's not an institution for perfect people. But a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace. The church is a place where people, though saved, are sinners still and need all the help they can get from their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. The church is the dearest place on earth. I love this place. Good morning, everybody. Let's do this. Let's grab our Bibles or open your church app or your, your uh, app on your phone. And uh, welcome to everybody over at, uh, at Grand Avenue as well. Good to have you here. And why don't you grab your Bibles there and well, let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, that's in your New Testament. Just keep going towards the back um, and look at verse 17. We'll get there in just a minute. Let me just sort of catch us up. We're in this five-week series that we are calling I Love This Place, and it's on the local church where we're looking at the local church and kind of what, what God has designed and structured and all that sort of stuff and, and trying to help us understand that a little better. And so our first week really just took a look at what the church is, and we said what God is doing through the church is really amazing. He's, he's building something. He's creating something where, where the Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 2, he's joining us together. He's building us together. He's the momentum of Jesus, if you will. What he's trying to do with each one of us is not keep us far apart, but pushing us together to the point that he says he takes all these races, all these ethnicities, all these backgrounds, and, and he's, he takes male and female, and he pushes them together, and he says he creates one new man. So that, so that now there's this commonality among us that transcends all those other things that normally would separate us. And what's what the, the commonality is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He did it through the death of his son. This is what binds us together. By that we receive the spirit. The spirit of God dwells in us and he brings us together and we're now one new man. But he also uses this metaphor that he says when he does that, he's creating us to be one household. That is that we now come under God as our father, Christ our brother, and we are related to each other as brothers and sisters as the family of God once we're followers of Jesus. Now, this will cause some messiness, won't it? This will create some problems because we all know if, you, if you've lived in a family at all, families fight, families have problems. But the thing that separates families from other relationships is that at the end of all that, you're still family. In fact, there's almost nothing you can do to get out of being a family. And we discovered this is really how Christ relates to us. This is how God relates to us as family members, this messiness and all. And so we looked last week and said what God is doing is the way he's loving us is through what we call covenant love. That is that God's love for us is not contractual, right? We don't talk about God's love. That We don't talk about some of the most important loves in our world with contractual language. You don't go to a wedding and hear the bride say to the groom and the groom say to the bride, well, I'll love you as long as you love me. Well, I'll, you know, do the dishes as long as you clean the car. I'll, I'll make sure I bring home this much as long as, you know, you, you do this for me, right? You would run from a wedding like that, like this is scary. This will never last, 
Rather, you hear to have and to hold for rich or for poor, you know, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, because we recognize there's something bigger going on than just what our society, you know, this sort of contractual quid pro quo, right? It's the term that just means something for something. I give something, you, you give me something in return. No, we talk about it as covenant love. And we say what needs to happen then is that covenant love of God, he's forgiven us, he's loved us, even when we're unlovely. He's fulfilled both parts of the covenant. He comes and pursues me when I'm not worth pursuing. That's covenant love, right? For richer, for poor, for better, for worse. I'm coming after you, Chris. You can't get away from me. And we said what happens then is now that that love of God has exploded on my heart, what should be happening, what I should see in my own life is it begins to shoot out to the one another's within the church, right? I ought to see that I love you. I'm so much so that John's going to say anybody who says he loves God but, but you know, is hateful towards his brother, which really, think of it this way, is apathetic, doesn't really care about his brother, then, then you're not a believer, because that should be shooting out. The, the, the vertical should become horizontal, and we should start seeing this. So then last week we said that leads us to a few implications, that if covenant love is what should characterize our relationship with one another, then what we should see is a few things. We, we shouldn't be asking questions like, <clears throat> how much can I get out of the church? We should be saying, how much of myself can I give to the church? Right? This becomes more about me giving than me getting. That ought to be your relationship to a local church. I am here to serve. I am here to give of myself. Right? But we also said that we don't push away. Covenant love makes us so we don't push away when things get hard, right? Because they get difficult. I mean, some of you like, oh, I've been coming to Foothill Church for a few weeks. We love this place. This is the best church I've ever been. I mean, I may, I'm not saying this to everybody. But like, people talk like this sometimes. Oh, I love the preaching. I love the worship. And I'm thinking, you know what? You're on a honeymoon right now. Like, give it a few weeks, and you're going to be like, yeah, whatever. I mean, this is the normal church. It's got problems. I see them. Covenant love gets to the whatever stage. Covenant love gets to the stage where all the newness is worn off and says, I still love you. And I'm still going to be committed, just like a marriage, right? But lastly, covenant love doesn't hold out for a perfect church. It doesn't look around and go, I got to find this, you know, this one where nobody makes mistakes because really you don't want to belong to a church like that. You don't want to belong to it because you'd feel really uncomfortable because you're not perfect and neither am I. And man, I'd hate to run with a bunch of people who never make mistakes. And, I, and, and like Charles Spurgeon says, you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll spoil it, right? Because you'll suddenly become unperfect because you're there. So in other words, if I can wrap it all up, when it comes to our relationship with each other and our relationship in the local church, we are, we are not consumers. God hasn't called us just to be consumers. He called us to be givers. That's covenant love. So now what I want to do today is I want to, I want to start talking about the structures of the church, okay? And, and what I'm not doing is moving away. Now we've dealt with the relational part. Now let's look at the structural part of church. That's not how this works because you can't separate the two. In fact, I would argue that every great relationship, there is a structure, there is something underneath it that supports it. I mean, so let's go, let's go back to marriage. If I think of covenant love, 
I think of the covenant love between a man and woman, okay? So now you've got a boy and a girl, right? They fall in love. Now, what's the normal course for that boy and girl? Where are they headed? They're headed towards marriage. How do you get married? Okay, if you don't know this, let me tell you, you're going to have to go down to a courthouse, right? You're going to have to get a marriage certificate. You're going to have to sign that certificate, sort of prove certain things. There's paperwork you go through in an attempt to formalize what right now is just, if I can say it this way, a feeling. And then you're going to go and probably do a ceremony. Right? And you're going to spend way too much money, but you're going to have this ceremony, and you'll go into debt, and you wish you wouldn't 20 years later, but in any event, whatever. So you have this wonderful time, and you are making these vows to one another in the context before God and man, saying, I will do these things. Now, why do we do that? Like, you've heard people say, why do I need a piece of paper to prove my love? It's a good question. Do you? See, when I, when I went to the courthouse with Michelle, we lived in Missouri at the time, I was in college. <clears throat> when I went to the courthouse in Greene County, Missouri, and asked them to give me a marriage license, she and I went down there. I didn't leave that place and go, you know what? Because this paper right here, I love you more. I just thought it's the weirdest thing. I just love you more right now, right? I didn't walk out and go, you know, I love you less. It did nothing to my love. When I had a wedding ceremony and we went through all of the pomp and ceremony and we said all the to have and to hold for rich or for poor, we went all that, it didn't make me love her more or less. Then why do we do it? Because those things don't create love, they codify love. And that's really important. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see every time God sort of announces, if you will, if we can say it this way, his covenant relationship, his covenant love for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whoever, there's always this sort of codification. Now, here's the terms of the covenant. Here's how unbreakable this thing is. So why do we do it? Why do I sign a certificate? Why do I go through all the pomp and ceremony? Why do you? Why will you? Let me tell you, it's not just because that's tradition and you ought to do it. You do it because you realize that romantic feelings that you would really hope would always be there ebb and flow. Can I get an amen from anybody who's past their honeymoon? <laughs> right? So, so you, you, you realize very, very quickly that the emotion of love, the romantic love that, that is wonderful, that is necessary, that must be present, has its moments of height and depth within a marriage, right? It's hard to feel romantic when your spouse is puking in the toilet, right? That's not a romantic moment. But you love them right through it, don't you? Right? So, so this is what happens. You've got to, and so, so what, are, what are these things we do? These are things that say to the world and say to the husband and wife together, listen, when things get difficult, I won't push away. When I want to leave, I won't. When, when you're unlovable, I'll still love you. When the honeymoon is over, I'm not going anywhere. And maybe I need that piece of paper to remind me I made a statement to the law and then I came to a church in front of people having God at the center of our ceremony saying I made a statement to God more importantly that this thing is a covenant and they never end. So what does this have to do with church membership? Everything. 
because structures codify covenant love. Structures are what we need to support this covenant love that we claim to have for one another. Okay, so, so what I want you to do is, is, is a, you're in Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just preface it this way. So we have this term at Fiddle Church, we call it covenant partnership. So today we're going to answer the question, what is that? What does that mean? Why do we do it? And, and, and I want to I be really, really clear that you're going to open your Bibles. We say the Bible is our authority. We love our Bibles, right? I mean, what we're doing right now, this five-week series, if you're new, this is unusual. We don't normally just sort of preach on topics. I'm going to get into the book of Daniel in a, in a few weeks that we're going to take through the rest of the fall. And so some of you like prophecy nerds are all geeked out like, oh my gosh, it's going to be awesome. And I'm going to seriously disappoint you. But in any event, we're going to go through that over a number of weeks. We love our Bibles here. We love to just sort of go methodically through them. Okay, but, but if you search your Bible, you're not going to find the words covenant partnership. Okay, and by the way, some of you come out of a background where you've never even heard of such thing. Others of you, you called it membership. And so I'm going to use these kind of interchangeably, membership partnership, and I'll explain to you why we landed where we did in calling it covenant partnership. But for now, if you hear those two terms, synonymous, same thing, okay? Well, why then do we, do we practice, why do we teach covenant partnership? Why is that a thing here at Fiddle Church? We're so into our Bibles, and yet we don't see it. We don't see it explicitly in Scripture. Well, here's what I'd say. You don't, you don't, we don't get all of our doctrine, the church's doctrine, what we consider orthodoxy, doesn't just come from what we see explicitly in Scripture. There are major implications that you see in Scripture. So, for example, I'll just give you one example. We believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, okay? You will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. That means we believe in one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I'm not here to unpack that for you. I'm just saying we believe that. Where do you find it in Scripture? Implied everywhere. It's all over the place. So we take this grand implication and we say, this is doctrine. This is what we will, you know, plant our flag here and say, we believe this. In fact, that's a doctrine. The Trinity, that's a hill we will die on. You can't be a Christian without believing in the Trinity. So, so we look at church membership and say, okay, so why do we believe that? Why do we preach it? Why do we practice it? Why do we think that church membership partnership ought to be formal? Okay. So I want to ask and answer that question, and, and let, me, let me show you from Scripture. So you're in Hebrews 13, 17, and I want you to first of all see that the reason we believe in covenant partnership is because it's implied from church leadership. That's, these are, I'm going to show you a few things, okay? but this is just one of the implications. So go look at Hebrews chapter 13 and look at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, and I've lost some of you already. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So right out of the chutes, obey, submit. And I told you, some of you are like, yuck, you know, I don't obey anybody. I hate authority. And this is what I'd say to you. Any of you who, who bristle at that, Right? You don't bristle at authority. You don't bristle at obedience. What you bristle against is, is abusive authority. Because I promise you, every person in here loves when leaders behave the way they're supposed to behave. 
Like, let, let me show you something. I was at a conference back in January. Mark Dever, some of you might know the name. He's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Turn back to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. All the way, very, very, you know, uh, early part of your Bible. Listen, listen to these words, okay? <laughs> now, these are the last words of David. We're talking about King David here. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. Okay, it's David. The oracle of the man who was raised on high, right? The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist. All right, we know who you're talking about, right? He just repeats it over and over again. So you get the point. David, the most important king in Israel's history, is about to talk. And here he goes. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, okay, David, like, get to the point, right? We get it. And, and, and so this is what he's trying to say is this is hugely important what I'm about to tell you. Now, what does he say? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful picture of biblical, godly leadership. See, this is the kind of leader all of us long for. This is the coach. You know, everybody wants to be on this coach's team. Everybody wants to be in this teacher's class. Everybody wants to be the employee of that boss. Like, Man, I just grow. I feel like when I walk in, there's like a breath of fresh air. I mean, all of this is like, oh my goodness, they're, they're helpful. They, they're, they're, they're encouraging. All these things, right? This is the kind of leadership God says we ought to be facing. They, they help you. They're not abusing you. They're not like taking their power and say, I want to lord it over you. That's a biblical model of leadership. Now, okay, so, so when it comes to obedience and submission, if that's your leader, you're like, I got no problem with that. I'll sign up for that team. I'll be in that class. I'll, I'll be employed by that guy. I'll, I'd love to go to that church where leaders are like this. Now, now why, why, do I, why, why do I bring this verse up? Because here's what I want you to see, okay? So here we go, class. We're in English class right now, just for a second. And the word obey and submit, those are what we call in the English language imperatives, right? We all know what an imperative is. Do this. This is a command, right? So everyone in here is required to obey this command to obey and submit to leaders in the church. I didn't make this up. I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, get everybody to bow to me. That's not what's happening here. This is God saying, this is what you must do. How, who are the leaders you have to obey? Okay, because now we're Bible-believing Christians who open our Bible and say, I want to submit to the Word of God. Okay, so how do you do that? How do you do that with Hebrews 13, 17? Who are you responsible to? Like, is it just any church leader? You happen to walk down the street and you run into John Dix from Grace Church here in Glendora and he tells you to do something. Are you required to, are you, did you obey that? Or Bruce French or somewhere else, right? Are you just any church leader you now have to come under the authority of? And let's switch it around because he also says, 
these leaders that you're supposed to obey are going to have to give an account for you. So who are they responsible for? Am I responsible for every Christian in the universe? I mean, look, it's weighty enough that there's a thousand some odd people that come to Foothill Church. That's a lot of people to feel like you're responsible for their spiritual well-being, Chris and Stephen and Shane and John and all these other pastors in the church. So how do we do this? I mean, that's accounting language. You understand this? When he says give an account, that's like somebody saying, okay, here, I'm going to give you $100. You tell me exactly what you did with every penny of this. That's giving an account. This isn't just, you know, there's kind of money out there and all the money you do, you've got to just sort of get, no, no, no. No, here's a specified group of people that you're accountable for. See, here's what I'm saying. I don't know what to do with Hebrews 13, 17. I don't know what you do with Hebrews 13, 17 if, if there's no formal church membership. I don't know how you obey it. I don't know how I obey it. I don't know what we do. So there is this implication just from church leadership. Now let's keep going though. But there's also an implication from pastoral care. So, so if you go to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, let me give you a few of them here. And, and listen to this. Now, now we know from Acts chapter 2 that, that there was a growing number of converts. They were, they were coming daily. I mean, this church was growing. It was booming. I mean, they were growing every single day by people getting saved. And so the Bible, the Acts, is going to call these people disciples. Don't think disciples and think Peter, James, John, the apostles. That's a different group. Disciples are followers of Jesus. So, now in these days, we're talking about the church in Jerusalem. When the disciples were increasing, Acts chapter 6, verse 1 is where I am, in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, sort of Greek versus Jew, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, that is the apostles, Peter, James, John, right, all of them, the twelve summoned the full number of disciples. Now, right there, there's a number. Everybody, all these people who have come to Christ that we know about, we need you to come because we got a job for you to do. And if you go on to read, it says, out of this group that we just gathered, the whole number of them, we want you to pick out for yourself seven people. They had to vote. Okay, so who voted? Is anybody who showed up at church that day? No, it's like a letter went out. Hey, there's going to be a vote on, you know, whatever. We're going to send this to you and you're going to, this is going to be something you do. This group of people. Again, I don't know how to make sense of Acts chapter 6 unless there was some kind of, in the early church, there was some kind of, 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 of formal church membership and it was done for the purpose of pastoral care so that you can actually care for the widows that are being neglected right now. There's this pastoral concern that informs this, and so we find out. Okay, well, let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just keep going back in your Bible. Whoops. And listen to what he says. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. It says, let a widow be enrolled. Thank you. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, 
and having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, I'm not going to explain to you everything this passage is saying. Okay, There's a lot going on in here. What I want you to see is this. Apparently, the church in Ephesus, this is Paul writing to Timothy, his young pastoral protege, and saying, Timothy, here's what you got to do. As you organize the church, one of the things you need to do is take care of financially with food and provision and all that, take care of these older widows who have no ability to provide for themselves. That's good, right? And he said, make a list of them. Well, that's interesting. And make a list, because here's those that, that should be on the list, and here's those that should not be on the list. Now, now, does that mean Timothy ran out into the community of Ephesus, which was a large uh, Roman city, and, and went and, and censused all of the widows in the city? No, these are church women. So I can't conceive of how you make a list of widows if you don't have first a, another sort of master list, can I say it that way, of, of who's already in the church. So the clear implication is in order to, to sort of fulfill this pastoral care responsibility, therefore, you must be able to make a list coming out of this greater list of these are the people who belong to the church. Does that make sense? Okay, but now look at this one. How about the implication from church discipline? Now, we talked about this last week. We talked about we covenant with one another. And so if there's this unbreakable covenant, what about when a church isn't preaching the gospel? You should leave. What about when a church doesn't practice church discipline for open, rebellious, continuous, unrepentant sin? You should leave that church. So church discipline should be a part of a church that you go to. But, but now look, at Jesus is going to tell us, go back to Matthew chapter 18, and here's Jesus giving us, if you will, some sort of broad outlines for how you do church discipline, okay? So here you go. Step one, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. So stop there. Je Jesus says this, you find out about somebody in your growth group. You have a really good brother and sister in Christ. I mean, you both love Jesus, but you hear that this person is, is, is sinning and is unrepentant about their sin, and they think they can do it with impunity. The Bible says you should go to them and in love, like, call them to repentance. You must stop. This is a sin against God. Now, hear me, polite American Christian. This should be happening. These are the kinds of relationships. We call them around here gospel-centered friendships that you ought to have in your life where people can speak like that to you if they see you careening over the edge. And he says, if the brother, the sister hears you, you've won a brother, you've won a sister. Problem solved. Okay, but what if that doesn't work? Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two along with you that every charge may be, may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, so now he, she is refusing to repent. You pick, you, you bring other people that love that brother, that love that sister. This isn't like, you know, you're carrying torches and axes marching to their front door, right? This is no, we're, we're, we're here. Brother, we love you. Sister, we love you. Don't go over the edge. We see what's happening. If that person says, you know, you guys are right and I hear you and I'm sorry and Jesus, I repent. You've won a brother again. Problem solved. 
What if that doesn't work? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to him, tell it to the church. So now you go, right? And I think the sin must be, the, the, the people you tell must, must be as notorious, right? It must be as well-known as the sin. So if it's been published broadly, then that means there's probably a lot more people that hear about it. But if it's, if it's like, hey, there's, there's been few people that it's affected, then you let those people know. Now you bring in more and more people from the church, so that that whole group can apply the pressure to say, and this is good. God says that's a good, godly kind of peer pressure put on somebody to say, repent and turn back to Jesus. But he says, if that doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, it doesn't mean necessarily they get booted out of the church, but it does mean that the church would say to them, we as church leaders, we as the people of God can give you no assurance of your salvation. Don't look to us if you're going to continue to walk in open, continuous, unrepentant, rebellious sin. Don't look to us to affirm what you're doing and say that's good and you're okay in God's eyes. You're not. And we can't give you that assurance. But now watch, because I think Paul takes this teaching, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and says, okay, let's flesh this out a bit in a specific context, and, and Corinth was a wild church, okay? Things happening like crazy. And so you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, it's actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated even among pagans, right? This is like non-Christians shudder at what you're doing. For a man has his father's wife. Now, I have I don't know. Maybe this is stepmom. Maybe this is really as creepy as it sounds. But whatever it is, it's awful. And, it says that, and, and look what he says. And you are arrogant. I mean, listen to that. You know what this is, church? This is an affirming church. This is a tolerant church. Anybody is welcome here. You can live in open, rebellious sin. You can call yourself a Christian. We celebrate that with you. In fact, we brag to the community that we are a tolerant, affirming church. And the Word of God says to us, we should mourn. We should not be celebrating that. You ought to be really troubled. And he goes on to say, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed. Why would, but that, this is drastic. This is like, he needs to be literally told, don't you come to church. Now, why would you do this? See, that, that, that strikes our Western ears as, I'm sorry, that just seems intolerant. That is terrible. You shouldn't be able to do that kind of stuff. This is a church after all. It should be filled with grace and mercy and all that. And amen, it should. But there are times when people cross lines and live in this kind of open rebellion, continuous, unrepentant sin. And there are times when that sin is so egregious, they must be removed. Now, why? We'll skip down to verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lamp lump as you really are unleavened. You hear what Paul just said? He now goes this metaphor. Like if you ever baked bread, you put the yeast in the bread and you can't stop it. It's going to grow. Sin cannot be stopped. 
tolerating sin, open, rebellious, unrepentant sin is like a cancer that will spread. And pretty soon you got people say, oh, that's awesome. Look how tolerant we are. We can do all kinds of things the Bible forbids because we're an affirming church. We just accept and embrace any kind of sin even when you call yourself a Christian. And so what do you do? Go down and look at, look at now, now let, let's make sure you're hearing what I'm saying here and you're hearing what Paul is saying. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, if you stopped right there, you'd be like, wow. Well, that's harsh. I got friends at work. I got, I got people who I know, you know, living with his girlfriend, his boyfriend. Now, look what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. And he goes on, says, are greedy or swindlers or idolaters, people who worship other gods. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. Did you hear what he just said? I did not say, Christian, that you must not, you know, we're not Amish and separate ourselves from the world and say, I'm sorry, you're sinning and I can't be around that. You know, you do this and I can't be around that. No, they're not believers. Listen, non-Christians behave as non-Christians. They don't have the Spirit of God. We befriend them. We wrap our arms around them. We say, we love you. We want to be in your life. We want you to be in ours. But... He says, now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. I'm a Christian. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we're doing this thing together. If he is guilty of immorality or greed or idolater or reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to associate with such a one. They ought to be kicked out from among you because they're blaspheming the name of Christ. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, non-Christians is what Paul means there. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Listen to me. I thought the Bible said, judge not lest you be judged. That isn't at all what you think it means. There are times when a friend, with a, when a brother or sister in Christ is sinning and about to careen over the edge and your lack of judgment will send them to hell. Your lack of standing in front of them saying, you can't, don't, don't do this. And so Paul says this, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See now, okay. Jesus talks about church discipline. Paul talks about this and pretty like, like get, them, get them out. Now, now let, me, let me ask you the question. How do you exclude someone who's never been included? Are you following me here? H how, do you, how do you say, I'm sorry, you're out, when they would say, whatever, I was never in? Because right? this is modern American church. Try, try pulling this on somebody, on most people who find themselves in a, in a church this Sunday, and here's what you're going to hear. Well, whatever, I... I don't go here. I mean, this is just one of the places I kind of like to attend. But there's no commitment. You can't kick me out. I wasn't part of this in the first place. And the Bible's going to say to you, you're in a very dangerous place spiritually. 
If there is nobody you obey to obey, there's nobody you submit to, there is nobody who is watching over your soul. You understand, our perseverance in the faith is a community project. We must have each other. That is an optional thing. And we can't just sort of have each other like, yeah, I like to run with Christians. No, you know me. I know you. We're in each other's lives. We're committed to one another. So again, I don't know how to make sense of that without some sort of formal covenant partnership, church membership. How do you do this? How do you expel people? How do you discipline people that need to be disciplined? I'm not sure you can. So, so I think the other thing is you find all these one another's, 50 some odd one another's. How, answer, you have to answer this question for you, for yourself. If you're not a committed member of a local church, and by the way, I'm not arguing. The Bible doesn't say you must become a member of Foothill Church, but here's what I'd say. You should become a member somewhere. Somewhere you're committed. Somewhere you're all in. Somewhere you obey and they're accountable for. See, how do you concretely obey the one another's of Scripture outside of that? How do you know what one another's you're responsible for? And how do they know who they're responsible for? See, see you, can, you can argue with me and say, well, Chris, um, okay, so church membership, I kind of see that. At least I see that in the New Testament, I mean, being a part of a church was a very serious thing. Uh, it wasn't taken lightly. But I disagree with how Foothill Church does covenant partnership. Okay, fine. We can disagree all day long about the practice and what actually goes on. Here's what we cannot disagree on, biblically speaking. That what God intended for us was to hop from church to church, uncommitted, doing whatever we felt like, this kind of laissez-faire, I just kind of like this church for this and that church for that. You won't find that anywhere in the New Testament. Like, it just doesn't even exist. So, so fine, disagree with us about the practice, but, but, but there is no way you're going to see in the early church the sort of lack of commitment. I'm here when I want to be. I'm not here when I don't want to be. There's no giving. There's no sacrifice. I don't serve. I just kind of do my own thing. It's all about you. You're not going to find that. That's unbiblical. I think it was John Piper. I found this in my notes from a few years ago, and I don't remember who said this, but he said this, you know what a member is? It's somebody who, whether by a signature or a word of commitment or a promise, says, I'm committed to a people who hear the word of God preached, who perform the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and commit to the one another commandments to love, exhort, admonish, and hold each other accountable. That's basically what makes a member. And I think something is wrong if you resist putting your name on a line for that. Chuck Colson, great Christian man, died a few years ago. Somebody asked him once, where do you go to church? Listen to what he says. He said, I've always resented the phrase, where do you go to church? I don't go to church. I'm a member of a church. You don't ask where somebody goes to a country club. I'm not talking about where you're going. I'm talking where you, about where you plant your flag and say, this is where I am a Christian. Now hear me. 
I want to say this as clearly as I can. Some of you are more committed to little league or basketball or, or, or softball or whatever, or some extracurricular activity than you are the local church. You have no problem when somebody slips a piece of paper and says, sign that covenant parent that says you're going to behave a certain way on the sidelines. Sign that covenant parent that says you're going to pay a certain amount of money to, for your kid to be on this team. Sign that covenant parent and say that you're going to give of your time to make sure little Johnny or Jane can play on the, on the little league team. No problem. Do, do you see how weird this is? Do you understand? I, I think you do. You have to understand this. You, you have to or you, you, you... I don't know how you couldn't. Did, little Johnny and Jane are probably not going to get a scholarship anywhere and, and are probably not going to play... Pro, not probably, highly likely their career will end very early. And so we, we are willing to invest... We're willing to sign our name. We're willing to make all kinds of commitment for these temporal things that will be here today and gone tomorrow. But what we will not do is say, when somebody comes to church and says, we want you to sign this covenant, I'm not signing anything. I'm not giving nothing. I'm not serving. Listen, hear me. I am not trying to blow up membership numbers here. I'm not trying to increase giving right now. I'm saying your priorities are totally out of whack. You have got the world upside down right now. When you would take something that is trying to train your eternal soul and you would substitute and say, I am willing to do more for these temporary things than I am for these eternal things. I'm sorry, that's just backwards. That's wrong. Don't resist that. Okay, so let me, let me, let me end and land the plane here with just a couple of questions, okay, that, that sometimes I get, okay, because, and, and, the, and the first one is this, what, what's wrong? What's wrong with hopping from church to church and not being committed anywhere? Because listen, I have never lived in a community like this one. Like, I, I'm really good friends with many of the pastors around here. We get together, we go to breakfast, we have, you know, coffee together at least once a month, and, and it's the weirdest thing. Like, oh yeah, that, that couple's at your church? Yeah, they were there last week. They'll be at your church next week. It's kind of what we do. We sort of go round and round, right? Like the preaching there, like the youth group here, like, you know, worship there. And so there's sort of like, you know, smorgasbord happening. What's wrong with that? Is there, I mean, hey, I think I'm God's gift to the church. I just sort of bounce from church to church. I, I think this church needs my attendance this Sunday. That one needs my attendance next Sunday. Well, let me tell you what's wrong with it. How in the world can you be obedient to Scripture? Right, if you're serious about that. Now, some of you are just like, I'm not serious about that. Okay, well, then I'm not talking to you. But if you are, how do you do it? Who do you obey? Who's accountable for your soul? How do you do, concretely, the one and others of Scripture? Who do you support financially? Some of you are like, well, that's the good thing, Chris. See, by not going anywhere, I don't have to support anybody. I keep all my money. You're not robbing me. You're not robbing this church. You're robbing God, the Bible says. 
See, how do you, I don't know, I just don't know how you can be obedient to what Scripture says apart from a vital commitment to a local church. One that's willing to sign on a line and say, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to covenant with these people. I'm going to covenant to this. They will covenant return to do this for me. Uh, let, me, let me answer real briefly. Somebody asked me this between, it's, it won't go up on the screen here, but some of you are college students. Okay, so what do we do? Let me just say to you, any of you who are college students, I understand if you are committed at a local church at home and you know, some of you are saying, I can only go where my roommates, look, I get that. I get that, okay? So, but here, here's all I'd say to you, is that you, you are as committed as you possibly can be to one location, to one place. And you go there. And you serve there. And whether or not you ever go through the membership process is not the issue. But the issue is that somebody is responsible for you, watching over you, helping you, nurturing you to grow while you're in college. Do that. Don't, don't act like, you know, this is, this is my seventh month to myself. Don't do that. That is dangerous, spiritually speaking. Okay, well, why do we call it covenant partnership? Because it's a covenant Right? It's us saying, we're, we're, you know, I'm not pushing away the table when things get hard, when the honeymoon is over, I'm still here, all those kind of things. But it's also a partnership. One of the reasons, I have no problem with church to call membership, so don't think me. We, we decided against, we moved away from that because membership so often uh, sort of has this idea that if I pay a certain sum, I pay my dues, then in return, you owe me something. That isn't what we want. It's not about us owing you or you owing us. This is about a partnership where we come alongside each other, covenanting together to pursue this mission that God has for us of leading other people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ rooted in the gospel. That's what we're all about. And you come along and join us in that mission, and we lock arms together as partners, not a place where you pay your membership dues. We're not a social club. Okay, well, how do I do that? How do I, how do I, what's the process of membership at Foothill Church? Well, you hear about it every single week, okay? So it's, there's these 101, 201, 301, 401, 501 classes. That is our membership process. That is our growth track that will help you grow. But that is a process that if you take it all the way to 501, will end in membership for you if you qualify. And by that, I mean you're 18 years old. By that, I mean you are a blood-bought, redeemed follower of Jesus Christ, right? You, you agree to covenant with us about certain things. And here's what happens in those classes. Basically, we're helping you understand who Foothill Church is. We're helping you understand things. You'd be like, oh, I didn't know you believed that because we'd rather you know that now than seven months after you shook my hand and said, okay, I guess I'm now a member. We'd rather you know it. So you're like, well, wait a second. I didn't know you guys believed that. Right? It's like going out on a date with somebody and then you find out like, you know, after a few dates, you're like, psycho. And, and we're saying, hey, Here's the psycho. We're just going to tell you right up front. This is who we are. And if you want to run with these psychos, welcome, right? If not, go find another group of psychos, right? We, we, this is who we are. That's why we do it that way. And so you can walk through our process starting the first 101, first Sunday of the month, 201, second Sunday, 301, so on and so forth. All happen over at Grand Avenue, right around the corner. That's how it works. So who are the covenant partners? People who have walked through that process people who have covenanted with us. But let me introduce you to some of them, okay? They're spread over four services today across two campuses, but here's what I want to do. In 2017, in fact, we have a board out in the lobby on both campuses that have the faces of those who became partners in 2017, 
Okay, so if you are one of those who became a member, and I'm talking to both campuses right now, who became a member in 2017, I want you to stand so we can see you. Okay, there, 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 good, good. Over at Grand Avenue, right on. Okay, now, if you are before 2017, you'd say, I was, I was already a member. You are part of our covenant partnership. Um, uh, you've gone through our process, whatever. You know, you've actually been communicated with about your membership. I want you to stand. So that'd be all the other members, okay? Right on. So this is a group of people. I want you to just look around, right? Old and young and everything in between, right? A group of normal people that say, man, I've walked through this. I've done this. I'm covenanting. I'm in this place. I'm with this community. I'm going to walk with them. And you can ask them about the process if you want to, okay? But I want to encourage you. Man, some of you have been on the fence. Some of you have been on the fence for years. Some of you just refuse to do it. And all I would say to you is, I'm not sure how you can be obedient to Scripture apart from some kind of membership or covenant partnership. Okay, so here's what I want to pray. I'm going to pray for these guys. I'm going to pray for you and ask that God would seal his word into our hearts and that we would all decide today, whether it's Foothill Church or somewhere else, we're going to be obedient to scripture. Okay? Bow your heads and let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it trains and corrects and rebukes and instructs. And Father, does all that so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now I pray, I pray for those who are standing. I pray for these, this current group of covenant partners. I pray that we would go out and be a light into our world. I pray that we'd be models of faithfulness, of commitment. Lord, in a world that seems so, um, so turned off by committing to anything or has our priorities so upside down when it comes to what we will commit to and what we won't, God. Let us see again that what's happening in this place is not just something that has a temporal value. It's something that is, is building us for eternity. And so I pray today you'd call people into that. I pray, Lord, there'd be, there'd be a group of people that would say, man, I, I want to commit. Maybe there's people here today that realize Foothill Church isn't the church for them. God, I pray wherever they land, they would find there a place where they say, I can be all in here. I'm going to give myself. I'm going to give myself away and look at how I can give more than I get. So do that, I pray. And help us to be vitally connected to one another because we're vitally connected to you. And through that, God, grow in grace. Have covering over us that, that protects us and provides for us. Do what only this kind of process can do, we pray. And Lord, I pray especially for people in this room who have not taken the first step even to come into a covenant relationship with you through Jesus Christ. May that happen today. May, Lord, they place their faith, their hope, their trust in Jesus, not in their own good works, not in their own ability to perform their way into your good graces. God, that'll never happen. But because they trust you, they look to you as their only hope for salvation. We love you, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Be seated.